Good morning. Uh, just a couple of announcements. This will be the last time that we will be uh, meeting on campus. We have no idea where we'll meet next week. We don't have a venue as of yet. Just to bring you up some other news you may or may not know. Um, you guys know that I wrote a book came out three years ago. Could it be this simple? Uh, it was published by our Review and Herald under its Autumn House Publishing label. And um, for the review, it's done. It's sold over three times as many as they were expecting it to sell when they published it. Anyway, they've informed me that they are no longer going to be supporting that book. Um, you should know that um, as of February of this year, they had agreed to do an audio version of the book, and we had finished all the recordings, and we had the masters to them, and it was basically within a couple of weeks of release of the audio version of the book when this phone call was initiated, and they pulled out the audio version and also were uh, basically saying that they're pulling the, uh, the print version as well. And the reason given was cited in an email to me because of the concerns over the character of God going on at Southern Campus. This issue going pretty deep and wide at this point. I had a meeting with uh, Gordon this week who was quite gracious and uh, he seemed very uh, empathic to our situation. His position was that the pastoral staff does not want us meeting on campus and the university's position has historically been to be supportive of the university church and if that's what the pastoral staff wants, they're not going to have our class meet on campus and have it appear as if the university is opposing the church. So... That was his position. We had a nice long dialogue of about an hour and a half, and um, he, uh, in the uh, conclusion, agreed to um, organize a forum for me to meet, and maybe some others, I don't know, but me to meet with some of the professors that would be open-minded and objective and friendly to discuss what it is we teach, because he believes that um, there should be an avenue for exploration of thought. So he's going to organize that. And I've already had one email from him uh, asking for what times that I could be available. Uh, and he um, leaves open the possibility in the aftermath of those dialogues that our class might be invited back onto campus. So, yes. In all of this discussion, has come up at all for a specific uh, answer to what is the heresy he asked if in this discussion somebody has articulated clearly what is the problem or the heresy. No one from the pastoral staff has actually sat down and talked with me. About three months ago, I was called in before the church board and pastoral board was quite unfriendly. There were some friendly people there, however. There were some friendly people there that actually expressed um, some support uh, during that, uh, that, that interaction. But the, the particular questioning was not a friendly questioning, at least the way I experienced it. Anyway, I asked at the end, uh, my question, at the very end, what, what about my Sabbath school class will I be teaching this weekend? And the response from Nixon was, well, your Sabbath school class and whether you teach was never in question. If we have any more questions about what's happening actually with our group, just uh, we'll talk about that after class. Let's, let's be with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will be guiding our minds and our hearts and also uh, how this message about you goes forward in your church. Use these current events to open hearts and minds, to cause an interest to stir in those who haven't even considered these possibilities. And may the message spread much wider than it has uh, ever before. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly health and healing. And the uh, lesson title is Optimism, Happiness and Healing. Yes. And uh, do we need to be optimistic this week? Yes. Yes. So in the Sabbath lesson, if we read the third paragraph, uh, the third paragraph says, 
Hope enables us to be optimistic even in troubled circumstances. This optimism affects how we feel emotionally and also influences our physical health, positively enhancing our immunity and general well-being. Do we have cause to be optimistic in troubled circumstances this week? I thought, I was reading this lesson, I said, well, how timely, how timely. Um, And then the the last paragraph says, we often cannot change external circumstances, but we can change our attitude toward them. And as we think about that, uh, how might we this week deal with our attitudes? Have, Have we had any attitude adjustments we've needed to make this week? Have we had any challenges, emotional uh, issues that we had to process through? What kind of things have you found helpful this week to help us maintain an optimistic and healthy attitude? One thing that I've been thinking about is that God's truth is the way to go forward with our powers that try to stop it from going forward. And the opposition really will agitate hearts so that... She said that the, that, the, that the truth is going to go forward regardless of the opposition. And those who try to oppose it will only agitate hearts to, to stir and study. And so this is going to be uh, working for good to get people to investigate. And that gives her, I guess, a good attitude or good optimism. Yes. And we're going to keep that too, is that we don't wrestle against anybody. It's the powers of darkness that we all wrestle with ourselves and we see in other people. And then we, you know, good can win out and we see the Saul of Tarsus came from Paul. Hopefully they see the same thing in us. And if you see that, you can have the healthy unity that John 17 talks about. He's reminding us that we don't wrestle against just human power, but against principalities. And I'm repeating because I've heard that in this room it's hard to hear. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, so I'm repeating. So we're wrestling against principalities and also our own, uh, our own natures that sometimes tempt us. Yes. We're told that we should not criticize someone unless we are willing to die for that person. So we love them so much, we're willing to die for them. Yeah, she's talking about criticizing an individual or pointing out sin in an individual's life that uh, the counsel has been that if you love that person enough to give your life for them, then you're the person who can go and talk with them and and bring them that critique. And, uh, you know, there may be a difference between critiquing a person individually than uh, dealing with concepts or ideas that are are going forward, too. Yes? In the beginning, it all started because when I say, talk about God. When he sees the truth presented like this class presents, and how much more so is he understood? So therefore, I feel like a lot of what we hear going on is lies told about this class because they themselves haven't come to hear it. She says she feels a lot what's going on are lies told about this class because the people ha- who are opposed haven't even come to hear what we teach in this class. Yes? Yeah, this brings us to a greater dependence upon God. Greater dependence upon God. I was, this week I was reading in Acts of the Apostles, just share with you a couple of paragraphs that I was reading. It says, as the gospel message pr- spread in Pisidia, uh, the unbelieving Jews of Antioch, in their blind prejudice, stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. The apostles were not discouraged by this treatment. Are we being expelled? Do we need to be discouraged? See, the apostles were not discouraged by this treatment. They remembered the words of their master. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The gospel message was advancing, and the apostles had every reason to feel encouraged. Their labors had been richly blessed among the Pisidians at Antioch, and the believers whom... They left to carry forward the work alone uh, for a time, were filled with joy in the Holy Ghost. 
And then this is out of My Life Today, page 69. Christ told his disciples that in the world they should have tribulation. They would be brought before kings and rulers for his sake. All manner of evil would be spoken against them falsely, and those who destroyed their lives would think they did God's service. And in all ages, those who have lived godly lives have suffered persecution in some form. They have suffered every indignity, outrage, and cruelty which Satan could move upon minds to invent. And then, this is the last uh, quotation, this day with God, uh, to Christ and to Christ alone is given the right of authority over all things. Those who put their trust in him and will hold fast the profession of their faith firm unto the end will be protected. As Christ's disciples, as laborers together with him, there must be united action among all laborers. Some are converted to the truth in one way. Others are best reached by a different method. So the laborers will act, some in one line, others in another, but all blend unitedly. To every man is given his work. Those who criticize their fellow workers open a door through which the enemy will enter. What can be more sad than to see brother working against brother, expressing suspicion and doubts of others' sincerity? There is room enough for all to use their God-given talents. All are laboring with one object of inspiring belief in the words of inspiration. Then let everyone so order his speech and work that he may be in harmony with those who are laboring to the same end as himself. Stay with God, page 297. Dean said, is that not what we're doing? Trying to promote the truth about God? Uh, in our way to reach people who are coming from uh, maybe a different perspective that are reached in a different way? Yeah. Yes. The thing that's concerning is that there's a lot of non-ethnists that participate in this class and are watching how we are behaving and, you know, seeing emails and so on. Um, it's a broader audience that's actually witnessing what's going on here. She said there are a lot of non-Adventists that participate with our class and with our website and with our forums, and they are watching how we are interacting and dealing with each other. And so there's a larger witness going on than just this local community. And it's sad that uh, that uh, uh, if it would be sad if unchristlike behaviors were were practiced. And we certainly, in our response and our attitudes and, and the way we handle ourselves, don't want to do that. Sunday's lesson. What, do you think it was appropriate for this week? Depression and despair. (laughs) Depression and despair. Third paragraph, it says, There are two main kinds of depression. The first occurs in response to unpleasant circumstances of life, such as death, illness, job loss, broken relationship. Want to fill in a blank there, anybody? (laughs) Everyone experienced some of these at one time or another. The other kind of depression is related to chemical imbalances in the central nervous system. This often is genetic and is as much an illness as any disease. We need to be accepting of people with these challenges and avoid judgment and stigmatization. I uh, read that and I thought, well, they're moving in the right direction, aren't they? This is much better than many things I've heard in the past. I think this is a healthy approach. They're trying to not be judgmental, trying to be understanding about these things. Um, but I thought maybe you might want might enjoy some, some, some facts about brain, body, science, behind depression and some of these things. If we were to look at the genetic contributions to depression, and if we were to account for 80% of the variants, that means um, 80% of the depression uh, caused by genes, how many genes of our genome would we have to include? To, If we include them all, this will account for 80% of depression, of the, of the variants of depression. 
or the risk of depression? 80% of the risk. How many genes? We talk about genetic vulnerability. How many genes? Any guesses? Four. Four genes. Any other? One. 93,000. What? 93,000 genes. 93,000 genes have to be included in order to account for 80% of the risk of depression. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Yes. What percent is that? Oh, 93,000. What percent is our genome? Yeah, Yeah, um, our genome is quite large. So. No, no, no. Our genome is quite large. Yeah, I don't know the exact percentage of our genome, but it would be a small percentage of the entire genome. But it's still a lot of genes. 93,000 genes uh, would have to be included. What does that tell you, though, about about the uh, the genetic risks for depression? It's complicated. There are a lot. It's complex. There are lots of various things going on. I'm going to share with you a little bit of the complexity here. Uh, this morning. But one gene that has been involved, is called, it's the gene for the serotonin transporter. If you know that neurons communicate one neuron to another neuron, releases neurochemicals into a space between the two neurons called a synapse, and then there is little reuptake pumps from the neuron that release the chemicals, like little vacuum cleaners that suck that stuff back up and repackage it. Those are called reuptake pumps or transporters. Um, and because we have different types of chemicals in our brain, some neurons communicate with serotonin, some neurons communicate with dopamine, some neurons communicate with neuro- epinephrine, those neurons that communicate with serotonin have serotonin transporters that suck serotonin back up. Anyway, there's a gene that codes for all these different things, and there's a gene that codes for the serotonin transporter. In the human genome, there are two versions of that gene. One version is called is a short version of the gene, because short because it has less actual um, base pairs that code for that gene, and one's a long version of that gene. Now, if you happen to have two versions, there's over 100 studies that historically showed that if you have uh, two copies of the short version, you have a higher risk of depression than if you have uh, the two copies of the long version. Two studies recently showed that there's not a correlation. So 100 studies shows there is, two studies shows there's not. What we're recently now discovering is actually this is what's going on. The two short arm versions, if you are raised in an environment that is stressful, neglectful, abusive, challenging in some way, that you then have increased risk of depression later in life. If, however, you have two two copies of the short-arm version, and you're raised in a nurturing and structured and healthy environment with healthy parents, that you actually become an alpha male or an alpha female. You become one of the dominant people in society that end up governing and ruling other people. Or, or, or strong in leadership in some way. And so what the, the short-arm version is actually conferring is not risk for depression, but sensitivity. And so if you have a traumatic environment, you're much more sensitive to that trauma and therefore have the negative consequences that come. If you are in a nurturing environment, you develop greater empathic and judicial skills because you're much more sensitive than people who are not. So that seems to be what is conferring. Um, in this particular slide, it kind of shows this, and, and what, what it's showing over here is simply symptoms. This is a person who's depressed, and if anybody ever knows or has been depressed, you know when people are depressed, they have symptoms, and symptoms of depression are things like loss of energy, impaired concentration, sleep disturbance, loss of appetite, loss of motivation, social isolation. Um, this is what it's just describing, a presentation of a person with a bunch of symptoms, over here is our genetic vulnerability. This is where we have two short arms of our, of our um, 
genome with the serotonin transporter, and then we have stress or some type of injury, and that interaction then causes a change in what's happening inside our body. And what this is showing is, and I want to maybe walk you through a little bit of this, um, that we have dysregulation in brain circuits. We have dysregulation in your, your physiological immune metabolic systems. And then you actually have dysregulation or alteration in cellular and subcellular functions in the brain. And we actually lose brain tissue when people are depressed. And this is just going to show you, is there evidence that if you have a traumatic childhood, you have greater risk of, of these problems? And this is an interesting study, and I don't know how hard you know this was to do, but this is what's called a 32-year prospective study. And a prospective study means that they started with people, and they followed them and watched them for 32 years. So this is over 800 people that were followed for 32 years, rather than a retrospective study where they just take histories and look backward through time. These are considered very reliable studies because you're getting real-time information as you follow them. And what they looked at was three indicators of childhood stress. One would be abuse or maltreatment. One would be neglect, and the third would be socioeconomic disadvantage. And so you, you rate one of those three. If you have none of those three, you weren't, you weren't neglected, you, didn't, you weren't maltreated, and you didn't have socioeconomic disadvantage, that's the bars in yellow. If you had one of those three, that's the bar in red. If you had two of those three, that's the bar in blue. And notice your risk of get, developing major depression, if you have none, is about 12%. That's pretty much the background risk of, of the human society because of other factors. But if you've had one of those childhood events, your risk almost doubles to 20%. If you've had two of those events, you're triple the risk, 30%. 30% likely. So childhood experiences are altering what's happening to us, uh, both neural circuit development and gene expression. How, this is a measure of inf- inflammation. It's called C-reactive protein. And it's a measure of the inflammatory response in your body. And you notice if one or two of the events, you, you get about the same risk. But if you have, excuse me, zero or one, but if you had two, you've got over 30% the risk of having an inflammatory disorder of some kind. This is stuff like diabetes, obesity, hyper, uh, triglyceridemia or hypercholesterolemia. This is what this means. And you'll notice your risk again goes up with childhood uh, difficulties. So our childhood experiences alter us psychologically, biologically, because of the uh, activation of the, what you're going to see in a moment, the infl- uh, stress cascade and the inflammatory pathways. It actually alters neural circuits as well. Let me just walk you through an overview of some of the circuits because we're going to tie this back in in, in a little while with your belief systems and whether it matters whether you worship a particular god or worship another god and how that affects your brain structure. Um, this is the amygdala. And the amygdala in your brain is analogous to an alarm. And I don't see one in this room, but some of the rooms have a fire alarm on the wall. This is the alarm. And when you pull the alarm on the wall, it's, it, everything comes to alertness. When this fires, it calls, it, it immediately calls a quick alertness and calls, just like the fire alarm on the wall will, the 911 operator. The 911 operator of our brain is our hypothalamus, which is connected to your pituitary gland. And the 911 operator has a radio that radios for help. The hypothalamus has the pituitary gland. And instead of sending out radio signals, the pituitary gland sends out hormone signals. And the hormone signals call for emergency responders, just like the 911 operator does with their radio. And the emergency responders come out of our adrenal glands, the adrenaline and, and, the, and the catecholamine, uh, glucocorticoids. And when the emergency responders arrive here at the scene of the fire, there's a fire chief who assesses how many responders we have, how big the blaze is, calls back to the 911 operator and and says, hey, you've got enough. Everybody follow me how this works? Okay. In our brain, these neurons, hippocampal neurons, have those glucocorticoid receptors on them. They register the rise of the stress hormones. This is your fire chief right here. And as the, as the enough stress hormones rise, they signal back to the hypothalamus, tell the hypothalamus you don't need to send anymore, even though the alarm is still blaring. 
So just like the 911 operator, the alarm's blaring, the, uh, she's called in responders, you get the fire chief over here, he radios back to her and says, I know the alarm's still going on on your board, but we've got enough, you don't need to send anymore. Those neurons are doing that, they're registering back. And then there's also an administrator at the, at the building, at the school, a principal, who uh, evaluates whether this is a, a prank, a kid call, pulling a false alarm, or whether this is a real fire, and decides whether to leave the alarm off or on or turn it off. That's our prefrontal cortex as our administrator. And it decides whether this is a real alarm or whether it's a false alarm. And so how this works, you're walking along this weekend and you step forward in the grass at one of the parks. Now the corner of your eye sees something black and slithery down at your feet. What are you likely to do? Alarm will fire. Call in emergency responders. Your heart rate picks up. Blood pressure picks up. You're already running two or three steps away. By the time your prefrontal cortex catches up and says it's just a rubber hose. <laughs> now when your prefrontal cortex says it's just a rubber hose, what happens? Notice, yes, exactly. As soon as it says it's rubber hose, it turns off the alarm, right? That's one of the jobs of our prefrontal cortex, to process this stimuli and turn off or calm the alarm system. Now, if we're sitting here, if we hear a loud bang, boom, we all startle. The alarm goes. Uh, the surge of adrenaline. We get that heart pumping thing. Prefrontal cortex, these guys over here, prefrontal cortex, it's a car backfiring in the parking lot. What happens? These guys over here, it's a mad gunman coming up here to shoot us and kill us. What happens? You see, what the prefrontal cortex determines is happening decides whether the alarm calms or the alarm even gets more intensely firing. This circuitry is dysfunctional in people with depression. Um, and it's dysfunctional also. This is, what childhood, this is what childhood traumas do. Let's talk about childhood trauma for a minute. Remember what brain development. When a child comes into the world, the brain has hundreds of millions of neurons more at birth than that brain has by the child, time the child is eight years of age. First eight years of life, the brain is busy reconsolidating and killing off neurons by the hundreds of millions. Conceptualize it as Michelangelo's block of marble. When Michelangelo gets it, Michelangelo's block of marble, when Michelangelo's done with it. By the time he's done with it, he has less marble. But he now is a masterpiece. Our brains come into the world prepared to be acted upon by education, environment, experience, neural circuits which are activated, are expanded and, and strengthened, neural circuits which are not used are pruned back and deleted. So you probably have all heard of kids who were locked in a cage somewhere in an abusive environment, never had the opportunity to, to hear language, and, and they're rescued in their adolescence. They're never, never able to speak right. They can never learn language because neural circuits of language have been deleted. This is how the brain works. So think about a traumatic environment now. I want you to imagine that you actually right now are convinced, believe that someone could come in at any moment and beat you severely or rape you. You, you're convinced that could happen any moment, and you have to take your final examinations in, at, at college with that threat hanging over your head. Do you think your exam scores could be affected by that? And you guys have a developed prefrontal cortex. Think about a child with an undeveloped prefrontal cortex growing up in a home in which any time daddy can come in and molest them, stepdaddy can come in and molest them, mama could come in and severely beat them, do you think they get overactivation of their alarm and anxiety circuits and that impairs development of prefrontal cortex? It sure does. So these kids not only come into adulthood with bad um, psychology and bad belief systems about themselves and about others and distrusting people, they come in with a brain that's out of balance, overactive uh, uh, alarm systems, underactive prefrontal cortexes. This is one of the main factors you're going to see in a moment that, that childhood uh, deprivation or maltreatment or socioeconomic deprivation leads to. It leads to overactivation of these circuits that result in a cascade of destructive events that lead to all those increasing risks of depression and other illnesses. 
But with this in mind, it's not the only thing, not just developmental. What happens if, um, if uh, you have thoughts like this? Everybody thinks I'm stupid. Everybody thinks I'm ugly. I'll be alone for the rest of my life. No one will ever love me. People laugh at me no matter what. I can't do anything right. I mess up everything I do. If you think like this, what do you think will happen here? Do you think you'll have a calm alarm circuit? Or do you think you'll be stressed and anxious all the time? Let's look at uh, at Christian principles. How about if you're breaking God's law? Let's say you're you're stealing. You're stealing from your employer. Embezzling money. And then your employer, your boss, just calls you because they need help moving a table in their office. And they call you, hey, Joe, what do you do? (laughs) Right? Isn't there an alarm that goes up? Oh, did I get found out? You see, you can't relax. If you're in violation of God's law, you're always on edge. Always. How about you're cheating on your spouse? And your spouse calls. What, what you doing? Where are you? There's a circuit fire. Are you more stressed? Yes. We can't have peace. So I just point this out. How about if you believe in an angry and wrathful God? That if you don't do what he says, he'll get you. Do you think you have peace in the circuit? Well, let's, let's, look at, let's look at what happens in depression and just keep that in mind. This is actually uh, functional brain imaging. And this is showing you different neural circuits. I will point them out to you and tell you what's happening. Um, but the blue basically shows decreased activity. Red shows increased activity. Remember, um, I didn't tell you about the lateral orbital cortex or the ventral medial cortex. These are the cortexes right above your orbit of your eye. So if you took your right above your eye and just went straight up, that's the part of the brain we're talking about. And in that part of the brain is where you would basically have your conscience. That's what convicts you of wrongdoing. Gives you a sense of guilt. Uh, redirects inappropriate social behavior. So if you were to stand up in this room right now and try and just undress in front of the rest of us, your orbital cortex and medial cortexes would start going crazy trying to redirect you and say, hey, this is wrong. Don't do it. And you'd start getting really, really uncomfortable. Okay? And aren't you glad you have that part of your cortex working? Yes. Well, it just so happens that people in depression, when they're depressed, have hyperactivity of this cortex. It's overactive, above normal. And so what does, what does that mean? That they're always feeling inadequate. Nothing they do is right. It's, it's wrong. They sense, feel a sense of guilt. It, nothing is good enough. No matter how well they perform, it's still not appropriate. So they get this overwhelming sense of, of gloom and dysphoria and guilt and inadequacy because this part of the cortex is overactive. And also, and that results in overactivation of our amygdala. So if you were actually trying to undress right now in the front of the rest of us, you just in your imagination know you would start feeling really, really stressed. Because this part of the cortex is going to activate your amygdala and say, this isn't right. Don't feel comfortable. And so we get much more stress stuff coming if you try to do that. Notice at the same time we get decreased activation in dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. That is uh, shown um, right here. Wait, actually right there and, and right over here. Decreased activity in dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. This is where we reason, plan, organize, strategize, problem solve. So here a person with depression has overactivation of the part of the brain that makes you feel inadequate. You're not doing anything right. While simultaneously, they're not problem solving or reasoning or thinking very well. This is why they often, if you ever had somebody with depression, try and talk with them and enlighten them. Um, they don't really hear it well. Yes? What does MDD stand for? Major depressive disorder. Major depressive. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, 
And then the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Anterior cingulate cortex is right here. And I want to focus on that portion for a minute. Anterior cingulate cortex is the part of your brain where you experience love, compassion, empathy, sympathy, altruism, other-centeredness. This is where you experience that part of it. This is what you would call, when the Bible talks about as a man thinks in his heart, or I'm going to write my law on your heart and mind, that is the anterior cingulate cortex where you experience those things. It's also the seat of the will. When you, so you reason and plan out here. Your conscience is, is in this region down under here. Okay, But where you finally make your choice it's anterior cingulate cortex. That's where you choose. So you experience love. So when the Bible talks about writing the law on the heart and mind, we're talking about rewiring our circuits of this part of our brain. Now, it's very interesting. They've done studies at the University of Pennsylvania, Newburgh and his group, that if you worship and meditate on a God of love, 12 minutes a day, 30 days, 12 minutes a day, 30 days, worship a God of love, they can measure growth right here. Anterior cingulate cortex, measurable on MRI scans in 30 days. That's not all, though. See, when the prefrontal cortex, normally the job is to calm that amygdala we talked about a moment ago. The pathway, the neural circuit pathway to calm the amygdala is through the anterior cingulate cortex. And so as you grow the anterior cingulate cortex, not only do you see growth in the anterior cingulate cortex in 30 days of measuring or worshiping a god of love, they saw deactivation or calming of the amygdala with reductions in blood pressure, reductions in heart rate, and and reductions in stress hormone levels, and a 30% improvement in memory function. And guess how old these patients were that they did the study on? 60 to 65. So these aren't these young, pliable kid brains. Okay? Every other God concept. Every other God concept. Angry God. Wrathful God. Punitive God. Distant God. Did not develop anterior cingulate cortex. It developed the amygdala. And the fear circuits got stronger. Now, what does the Bible teach us about perfect love? When we worship a God of love, the neural circuits in which we experience love grow stronger and turn off our fear circuits. Perfect love casts out fear. What did Ellen White say we should do for a thoughtful hour every day? We should a thoughtful hour every day. We should contemplate the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, which are the culmination of the universal history of the demonstration or evidence of God's character of love. And as we focus on that, meditate on that, we change our brains to become more like Christ, reduce the, the inflammatory cascade, the activation of the fear circuits. Yes? Someone invited me to uh, join the Animal Cruelty uh, Prevention Society. And when I did, I quoted something from Patriarchs and Prophets about the treatment that Balaam had given his animal when he was trying to go do something God didn't want him to do. It's actually on page 415. I did this recently. It's enough that I remember the reference. And uh, Ellen White said that those who abuse animals because they can, because they have the power to do so, are both cowards and tyrants. And they said that they, she said that they could see who is standing there, just like the angel that was standing in front of the uh, mule, that they could see the person standing there recording what they are doing, they have a different take on what they were doing at that point. Did you all hear what he said? Everybody? Okay, good. All right, let's go on. Um, because uh, this is actually uh, just showing you a different part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And you don't have to remember the name, but what the nucleus accumbens is, is the part of your brain where you experience joy and pleasure 
and happiness. This is where when they put that baby, your first child in your arm, and you got that oversensible joy. Uh, when, you, when you said I do and you kissed your spouse, you got that thrill of joy and happiness. You're getting lots of surges in your nucleus accumbens. This is where you experience all that happiness and joy. And, and this is comparing depressed, depressed, non-depressed, non-depressed. And what they did is they took and they looked what happens in the nucleus accumbens when you give a negative uh, 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 stimuli, like give, show them a picture and say, you're ugly, this is you. What happens in the nucleus accumbens? Well, there's no difference between the non-depressed and the, and the depressed and, and when you give them a negative stimuli. When you give them a neutral stimuli, just something like, hey, the house is blue, neutral stimuli, no difference between the depressed and the non-depressed. When you give them a positive stimuli, hey, you look great. That was, you, you look, you, you've got beautiful eyes. Um, the non-depressed group experience pleasure. They get a positive reward. The nucleus cummins fires. The depressed group, their nucleus cummins does not, does not fire. And so what happens is not only do you have overactivation of the centers where you experience guilt, conviction of wrongdoing, inadequacy, you can't do anything right, when somebody does affirm you and tells you you're doing a good job, you don't get activation of the circuits that actually let you feel anything good. So you don't feel anything good, even when th- good things happen when we're depressed. Um, so what neural circuits? Do child, uh, what disrupts neural circuits? Childhood trauma, neglect, deprivation, unhealthy behaviors like the uh, violating God's law, but unhealthy thinking, including our belief in, in, in unhealthy God concepts, actually alter neural circuitry of our brain. And this is actually just correlating, the, the, sc- the scale on the left here is just the severity of depression. The higher it goes, the more severe it is. And this shows the volume in certain brain regions, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, where you do your reasoning, thinking, planning, organizing, and then the, um, and then the medial prefrontal cortex, where we have that sense of conviction. Both of those cortexes, prefrontal cortexes, basically this tells you that the more depressed, the more volume you lose. This is smaller over here. So we lose volume. The brain is shrinking when we get depressed. Um, this is, uh, now we're going to take another step. Because I told you, we ha- we, we, do, is everybody with me to see that our thinking can affect neural circuits? Everybody with me? See that? Okay. And what we believe can affect neural circuits. So what happens, though, now, the question. Okay, so what? The alarm keeps firing. You don't have a good prefrontal cortex. You're having over this over-conviction of guilt. You're not experiencing pleasure. And your alarm is always firing all the time. So what difference does it make? Here's the difference. If the alarm doesn't turn off, it activates, this is down in your body now, your, what's called your sympathetic nervous system. And your sympathetic nervous system activates certain white blood cells. These are called macrophages. These are white blood cells, part of your immune system. And these white blood cells begin to release inflammatory factors. I call them toxic little terrorists. Toxic little terrorists, and they're listed right here. You don't have to know them. But just understand what they do is they start wreaking havoc in your body. They interfere with in, normal insulin receptors. And so when you have this chronic stress diathesis, your insulin receptors don't work as well in the face of your body dumping glucose in because when you're under stress, you have the fight or flight response. You need the glucose dumped in so you can fight or flight. And so the, the stress hormones are putting in glucose so you have it available. But now because of these inflammatory cytokines, you're getting insulin resistant. This means that this chronic pathway increases the risk of diabetes type 2. Dyslipidemia, or elevated cholesterols and triglycerides. Uh, obesity, which then increased the risk of ischemic heart attacks, strokes. Um, and uh, I'll show you in a moment, they activate what's called osteoclasts. Those are cells in your bones that eat your bone up so you get osteopenia and osteoporosis from this process. This is simply to tell you that Okay, this dysfunction in brain circuits, contributing to mood disorders, activates your inflammatory pathways, which lead to more coronary artery disease, 
which lead to more obesity, diabetes, and lipid abnormalities, which leads to bone loss, which leads to psychological and neurodegeneration and, and cognitive impairments. Um, all of these things through the inflammatory path and also more pain situations. That's all it's saying. Let's see if there's evidence for that. This is an interesting study. Let's see how many of you would like to do this. They took volunteers. Uh, uh, they took people who had depression and people without depression. The blue line are people without depression. The red are people with depression. They put them through what's called a, a trier social stress test. And here's what the test exists, uh, consists of. You are, you are given five minutes to prepare a ten-minute oral presentation on a specific topic that you will have to present before a panel of experts in that field. <laughs> and then you will have to answer oral math questions for five minutes. <laughs> That is what you go through, okay? And so that's this, that's this period of time here where they're doing that, uh, that, uh, that period of time. So their preparation time, their examination time, and then, their, uh, and, and then and that's it. And you'll see that, the, and this is a measure of interleukin-6, which is a measure of inflammation. It's one of the cytokines. It's an inflammatory marker. Notice those without depression get a little rise here, but then they basically have a, a um, compensatory response, and they, and they blunt that rise. They don't continue to have stress hormones rising or stress inflammatory factors rising. Those with depression, notice they can't blunt that. Uh, 60 minutes, 75 minutes, 90 minutes, they continue to have this rise in these inflammatory factors. So life stressors, they don't compensate well for, and they get this overreactive inflammatory cascade in their body. This is actually showing you that as um, the interleukins, that's, that, that's the same inflammatory marker, as they increase, then your concentration worsens, your guilt worsens, your sadness worsens, your self-esteem worsens, your suicidal thoughts worsen, your tiredness worsens. In other words, all those physical, psychological symptoms you're getting are directly correlated with increasing inflammatory factors in your body. And the reason for that is that these interleukins or these inflammatory markers actually interfere with synaptic signaling. They get in the synapses and interfere with the signaling of your neurons. So it's another factor in this process. Um, this is just showing what are your odds if you have depression, anxiety, or both depression and anxiety, what are the odds that you will have one of these illnesses? And the odds ratio of one means that if, you, if one times the number equals the number, so it does not increase, so one times ten equals ten, it does not increase your risk if your odds ratio are one. Anything above one increase your risk. And so if you have uh, any of those or combination, your odds ratio of having asthma is, is one 0.75, so it's almost, it's not quite doubling the risk. Same thing with hypertension. It's nearing two, but not quite two. Arthritis, if you have both of them, you're over two times the risk of having arthritis just because of having depression, anxiety uh, together. Heart disease, you've got double the risk with either one and more than double the risk with, with um, two of them, both of them anxiety and depression. Same thing with back pain, chronic neck pain. Multiple pains, you're four times the risk of having pain problems if you have anxiety and depression because of these inflammatory markers happening through your system. This is if you have somebody, know somebody who's had a heart attack, at the day of the heart attack, or right there during that hospitalization, you do what's called a Beck depression inventory. This is just a little objective test. You take measures of the severity of depression. If you have no depression versus mild depression versus moderate depression versus severe depression, and you follow them, this is how long people lived. One year, two year, three year, four year, five year. You can see that the severity of depression correlated directly with how long they live. Depression alters our physical body. Um, this is showing progression of... The, anybody heard of arthrosclerosis? 
Thickening of your arteries, closing your lumen. If you're depressed, this is a depression scale, 0 to 1, 2 to 4, 5 to 19. This is three-year follow-up. This is measuring the, the thickening of the artery, of the carotid arteries, which is the one in your neck. Notice that the more depression you have, the thicker your arteries get over that same period of time. This inflammatory factor. It's really devastating to us. This is what the Proverbs say, that heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A cheerful look brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. And a cheerful heart is good medicine, but crushed spirit dries up the bones. Um, Is this just metaphorical? Well, interesting, this next slide will show you these are um, 0 to 2 on the geriatric depression scale, 3 to 5, which is um, no depression, mild or moderate to severe depression. And you'll notice that your bone loss, this is bone measures of bone loss, significantly increase the more depressed you are. So your bones are being uh, damaged by depression. We're almost done. This is looking at the white cells of the brain in in actual micrographs and showing that people, no depression here, depressed person here, do you notice the dark stain are the white cells of your brain? 90% of your brain is made up of the glia or the white cells that support the neurons, the gray cells. Do you notice there's a loss? We're losing neuron, uh, lo- losing the white cells. And if you want to kind of conceptualize what white cells do, some of the white cells are called astroglia. Just think of astronaut, astroglia, astronaut. Uh, astronaut never is in space without a spacesuit. And the spacesuit provides a nice milieu and environment to keep him healthy. The astroglia and the white cells surround the neurons to provide them a nice milieu to keep them healthy. That's what they do. When we start losing them, imagine you're an astronaut in space and you start losing the integrity of your spacesuit. You're not going to do too well. And this is what's happening. Our, our white cells die and then the neurons begin dying. And then this is just showing you in the hippocampal region, this is where your fire chief is. Notice, this is the non-depressed control showing the size. Notice the size in the depressed person. Significant volume loss in the brain. Brain is shrinking when people are depressed. And this is showing activation, normal activation, lots of bright colors. Depressed patient, not a lot going on. The brain is not functioning well. And this is just showing um, as the depression goes up, so do the inflammatory markers. And this is uh, a measure of neuronal health, and the, the measure of neuronal health goes down. I wanted to show you this one uh, because I think you'll find it most interesting. This is not looking at any medication or inflammatory markers. It's looking at functioning, actual activation of, of our alarm system and our dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex where we do our thinking in response to psychotherapy, cognitive therapy. And what happens is the red shows the non-depressed person. The blue shows the, uh, the activation before psychotherapy. And then this, this orange kind of here shows the, the activation after psychotherapy. And in this particular study, they showed them an ugly picture. And they said, is that you? Is that a picture of you? And those without depression didn't have any activation. This is the amygdala. That's the circuit where you fear stress, anxiety, where you get all that alarm stuff going on. Uh, those without depression didn't bother them. No, that's not me. Oh, big deal. Okay. Those with depression, though, they get this significant activation from something as insignificant of that. They get all this stress and all this activation of these stress hormones. After psychotherapy, notice. It actually alters. Psychotherapy alters the neural circuits of the brain. And then over here, they just take digits and have them put them in order. Put those digits in numerical order, which requires activation of the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex where you plan, reason, organize, and so forth. Those without depression, you can see it activates very well. Those with depression, significant reduction in activation here as they try to do this. But after psychotherapy, notice the marked improvement in activation of the dorsal lateral cortex. So psychotherapy, this is not medication. Psychotherapy significantly alters. And psychotherapy 
is another way of saying changing the way you think, changing your beliefs. Changing your beliefs. So a healthy spirituality, teaching you how to, God said, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. Come let us reason together. It's actually reasoning together, bringing the truth to bear, changing our belief systems actually alters our brains. This is very cool stuff. So what can you do to have a healthier brain? Let's see. Know God and know the truth about him. This is not a, it's not a, 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 a mystical thing when it says in Romans chapter 1 that those who exchange the truth for, of God for a lie do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, preferred images made with their own hands uh, to the knowledge of God, that their minds became futile, their minds became darkened, and their minds became depraved. We can't have healthy brains or healthy minds if we hold in our concepts and belief systems distorted pictures about God. That's why life eternal is knowing God. That's why we war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It all comes back. That is the central thing that we have to come to first. Next things we can do is live in harmony with all of his laws. The laws of health, the laws of worship, the laws of liberty, the laws of beneficence or giving. Good science shows that if you live a life that's beneficent, a giving life, you actually have calming of the fear circuits, development of the anterior cingulate cortex, less stress hormones, less inflammatory factors. You have better physical health, better mental health if you live in harmony with God's law of love. That's how we're designed to work. Live in harmony with his laws. Um, exercise, physical exercise actually will cause the muscles of your body to produce interleukin-10. Interleukin-10 is a very powerful anti-inflammatory interleukin that suppresses all those bad inflammatory interleukins that we just talked about. Not only does exercise do that, which is very helpful in, um, in combating all the stress that we live with every day and all the consequences to our body, but exercise also causes the brain to release endorphins and enkephalins, which are mood elevators, and also causes the brain to produce what's called neurotrophic factors, which keeps the neurons healthy and actually will have the brain make new neurons and increases vascularization. You'll get new capillary growth in your brain which gives more nutrition and oxygen to your brain. Exercise is extremely good for your brain. Uh, Regular sleep. Extremely important because when you sleep at night, um, memory consolidation occurs. Right now, hopefully you guys are learning something. But all that learning is stored in your actual hippocampuses, your fire chief. That's where you have new learning going on right now. Tonight, if you have a good night's sleep, then that that new learning will actually be transferred into the cortex for long-term retention. If you use certain medications... Certain medications interfere with that transfer, so you have memory problems. You don't learn as well. Particularly some of the sleep medicines do that, like Ambien and Xanaxes, Valiums, Clonopins, Benzodiazepines. Those things interfere with that memory transfer, so you may sleep, but you don't learn as easily. And this is why it's particularly bad in older persons, and it can cause significant worsening of memory problems. That's why I don't use those things in older persons, um, because it worsens memory. But regular sleep's important. You also get the normal release of your healthy cortisol levels, which helps you manage stress during the, during the day. Um, what else can we do for healthy brain? A healthy diet. We need certain nutrients. Omega-3 fatty acids, B vitamins, folic acid, certain healthy nutrients we need for the neurons to be healthy. We want a healthy diet. Um, meditate on God's character of love. I already went through the neurobiology of why that's so important, but do that. That's really physically healthy for you. And rejoice, keep a positive attitude. Yeah, that's, see, if we start getting a negative attitude, the cup's always half empty. You know p- pessimistic people? Always looking at the downside of things, not having a thankful heart. It really activates the negative circuits, and over time, those circuits grow stronger because the more you use it, the bigger they get, and then that causes a more activation of all those stress things. And then keep a larger view. What does a larger view mean? 
step back and try to see things from God's perspective. There's an eternal reality. There's a great controversy going on. It's not just you or me. Remember Elisha when uh, his servant came and said, hey, man, the enemy has surrounded us. Elisha had a larger view. He saw the angels surrounding them. And he wasn't distraught by it. We had a larger view. And then if needed, medications. Sometimes if you're in a depression, in fact, many times in a depression, medications are vitally needed because they actually turn off, reverse some of this damage. They turn on the neurotropic factors that have been suppressed. They show neuroprotection in stressful situations. So medications can be helpful. These particular slides won't be available. Some of the slides are actually on the website through a lecture I did about a year and a half, two years ago now, called Depression, the Spiritual Biological Interface. These particular ones, um, I don't have permission to put on our website. Questions about any of that? And I thought since this lesson was on depression, I ought to share some of that with you. So as we look about this issue, because it comes down to, a big part of it is our God concept that we worship and look at. And I wanted to contrast the God concept we worship uh, with, and particularly look at God's methods. What are the methods God uses in dealing with things versus the methods Satan uses? See, oftentimes we, we get stuck and we look at things like this. What is the right doctrine? Let's say doctrine of baptism. Now we can, or doctrine of Sabbath. Which day is the Sabbath? We can prove the doctrine of the Sabbath. We can prove the doctrine of, of baptism immersion. But what methods? Are we on God's side by promoting the right version of baptism and the right uh, day of the week to worship on and then using uh, governmental authority to pass laws to coerce people to make them get baptized in this way and worship on this day? Are we still now on God's side? Or have we just left God's side and now we're on the other camp? A lot of people miss this. They, uh, it doesn't matter the methods as long as we have the right doctrines. But I'm going to tell you, methods are actually more important. Methods are more important. I'm not saying doctrines aren't important, but methods are more important. Those who put Christ on the cross and wanted him down by sunset, did they have a problem with which day, of the worship, which day they worshipped on? Did they have a problem with believing in creation or evolution? No, there's a big debate going on in our church about that right now. But they didn't have a problem with that. They believe in the Creator God. They have a problem about tithing, about diet. They have a problem with their diet, eating the wrong foods. Now, you can go down the list. They were keeping the list, but their methods were not God's methods. So, think about God's methods. What are God's methods? Truth, love, and freedom. Big three. Truth, love, freedom. How about openness? Is God's government an open government? Openness. How about humility? Yes, how about tolerance? How about this one? Reasoning. Is God's government a government of reasoning? Amen. Where, where we, his intelligent creatures are given permission to actually think. And I want to contrast these. So God's government is love. Satan's government is selfishness. God's government is truth. Satan's, selfishness, Satan's government is lies, deception. Uh, God's government is openness. Satan's government is secrecy. He works in secret, in closed doors, um, you know, uh, that type of thing, behind the scenes. God's government is freedom. Satan's government is? Slavery. In slavery, coercion, control. God's government is humility. Satan's government is? Arrogance. Yeah, pride. God's government is tolerance. Satan's government is? Intolerance. God's government is reasoning. Satan's government is? Non-thinking obedience. Non-thinking obedience. Um, God's government is evidence-based. Would you agree? Satan's government is claims-based. Declarations and claims without evidence. 
So when we, when we are comparing, do we want to just compare, are they teaching the right doctrines? Or do we also want to compare, in addition to doctrines, what methods are they using? Are we using coercive methods? Are we intolerant? Are we using declarations we don't need to reason, we just need to have faith and believe it because it said so? Our natural instincts are to practice Satan's methods. That's our natural instinct. We're born with that, to retaliate, to become intolerant. And it's in situations like this. I'll show you the great opportunity we have, folks. It's in situations like this that we are presented with opportunity to choose to exercise different neural circuits, to cooperate with God for the rewiring of our brains, the transformation of our characters. And this is why the, the apostles are constantly telling us, rejoice in the difficult times in the trials, because these are the opportunities for you to make a choice to deny your natural tendencies to be that selfish person and to activate through God's grace and his presence the interesting cortex and the circuits of love and become a new person through God's indwelling presence. At the close of the lesson for today, there's a recommended reading from Minister Healing whole chapter three. So to imagine that a woman at that time in this earth's history had insights into the same concepts that you presented on the slides is incredible. That's exactly right. He said the, the, uh, the end of the lesson for this week recommended a chapter in Ministry of Healing. Do you remember which chapter it was? On the mind. On the mind. And she had, and, and, and her writings were completely in harmony with the science that I showed you today. And that's fantastic because she wrote this 130, 40, 50 years ago. I don't know exactly the date. So let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this opportunity to study together. We don't know what the future holds, but we know you hold the future. We put our lives in your hands. We ask that through this upcoming week and as the things unfold, that we will conduct ourselves in harmony with your character of love, presenting truth in love and leaving others free. Give us the courage to stand our ground graciously and wisdom to know uh, what, what actions to take in any given circumstances. Uh, may the events of this week serve to open the minds of people to, to have them examine and think for themselves. And may the truth about you really start a fire in our church so that this gospel of the kingdom may really go around this world because we are told that when the gospel of the kingdom goes around the world that you are going to come. And that's what we want to see, Lord. We want to see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.